0: Good evening. Good evening. So glad to see you tonight. Remember that we are starting a new series on Sunday nights as well and it is a piggybacking off of Sunday morning. So we talked about this morning Jesus is love and tonight we're talking about how we are loved and remember the goal is to set us forth going throughout this week maybe helping us to retain what it is that we learned on Sunday morning. You also notice that in the bulletin there's no outline anymore. I'm sorry about that, but uh, there's just no room in the bulletin anymore, uh, especially with putting the order of service on both sides there. But if you would, bring a notebook, take some notes. I would love to see folks taking notes. If you think that you need help retaining, you know, uh, and you don't have the bulletin necessarily to write on anymore, bring a notebook. I think that would help. Um, We're talking about how we as people are loved. And you know, the other night I was uh, flipping through the channels and I landed on this uh, gentleman who is an atheist. And he was talking about how he just cannot believe in a God who would murder children, who would sanction wars, who would look upon the ills of society and remain distant. And as I listened to him speak, and as I listened to him talk about he couldn't believe in a God that does all these things, I thought to myself, yeah, I don't believe in that God either. And if that's the God that you're trying to put your faith and trust in, I don't blame you. But so often, our image of God is formed from myths, fantasy, maybe from the father that we had growing up. How do you describe the ocean or the beach to someone who has never been able to see? How do you describe Beethoven's Fifth to somebody who could never hear? How do you Describe the love of an infinite and perfect and holy God to finite beings. Here's the deal God is not just loving, God is love. 1 John. 4, 7 and 8, we looked at it this morning. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. But what does that mean? We say it all the time, God is love. What are we saying when we say that God is love? Well, what we're saying is that the love of God permeates everything about God. Now, we have to understand That the love of God is not just some piece to an overall composition. Because God is not a composition. Everything that God is, He is infinitely and perfectly. He is boundless. So when we say that God is love, we're not just saying that God is loving. We're not saying that a portion of God's character is that He's love and there's a portion that He is merciful. There's a portion of Him that is just. God is not a composition because to be a composition would mean that there would have to be something greater than God to compose him, and we know that that's not the case. So God's mercy doesn't wrestle with God's love, and God's justness does not wrestle with God's mercy, and so on and so forth, because God's not a composition. Everything he is, he is to the infinite degree. We know that God didn't have a beginning. We know that he has no end, So when it comes to God's love, we know that it is infinite, and it is boundless, and it is perfect. All those things that describe God certainly permeate His love. If God is infinite and perfect in all that He is, if He knows no boundaries and no degrees, His attributes are who He is, then it naturally follows that God's love is infinite, perfect, boundless, and knows no degrees. And that's good news for us. When I was growing up, my mother was president of the Humane Society in Greene County, which meant that there were always a lot of dogs and cats both in our house and around our house. I can remember one particular instance where my mother was called to go pick up a dog that had been abused. And we get to the house and this dog was pitiful. I mean, he had bruises all over him. He had been tied to a tree. You could see his ribs. It was a pitiful homely-looking dog. Finally, we load him up in, the, in a carrier, we take him home, we turn him loose in the backyard, we give him something to eat, and it didn't take him long before he fattened up, before he looked like a majestic pure breed of something. I don't know what he was, but he looked great. No more seeing his ribs. However, it took him a lot longer to warm up to me or my mother. Every time I went out there to feed him, he would still hunker down and whimper as if he was ready to take his next beating. But after a while, it took several months, but after a while I would go out to feed him and he would run up to me, he would jump up on me, he would roll over on his back and want me to rub his belly, he would lick me to death. He was starving still, but he was starving for attention. He just needed to learn that his master wasn't going to abuse him. He learned eventually that we were going to take care of him. He also needed to understand that we loved him. There are many Christians that fall into that category. Some folks like that dog, they don't understand because they don't understand who their master is. They don't understand that they are loved. Remember John three sixteen? Of course you do, right? Probably the most well-known Bible verse, aside from maybe Matthew 7, 1, do not judge, right? John three sixteen, you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Sometimes we can know something so well that we completely miss the point of it. And I think that's the case with John 3.16. I think it's a verse that we know so well that sometimes we miss the major point of it all. Some people view God as one who looks down on human beings with dispassion and 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 he sees their disobedience and their rebellion and he says, I can't wait to cause them to suffer. I can't wait for them to burn for all eternity. Some think God is seeking human allegiance, that he is some egomaniacal being that just wants people to serve him because that soothes his massive ego. It's easy to think this way because this is the way that we sometimes think, right? But the tremendous truth about John 3.16 is that it shows God acting, not for his own sake, but for the sake of sinners. People like you and me that so desperately need the love of God this is not a God who desires power to make the universe cater to his thirst for abject loyalty, to satisfy, you know, some, some ego that he has. John three sixteen points to the width of God's love. It was for the world. It's the world that he loved. Not a nation, not just one person, not just a group of people, but the world that he sent his son for. It was the unlovable, the unlovely, the lonely. People who needed him above all else. People who even spurned that love, they were included in the scope of this. And it's a love that manifested itself in a way that is completely foreign to our way of thinking, going and dying on a cross. Have you ever looked at a couple and thought to yourself, what in the world is she doing with him? You can admit it. I mean, we're all friends here, right? Have you ever thought that? You ever look at a couple and you think, what does she see in him? And we usually, we usually say it with that inflection, right? What in the world does she see in him? Most of us guys have outkicked our coverage. Don't ask my wife what she sees in me. She may tell you, but we do that, right? We, we Sometimes we look and we, maybe it's a family member and we say, yeah, I don't know what she's doing with him. And maybe we think that about God and we think, what in the world does he see in me? Why would he ever want a relationship with me? Why would he ever want to attach himself to me? But consider Hebrews 4.13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give accounts. Pretty scary, huh? Naked, open before God, that's how we appear before him. And it doesn't get any better when you look at the original language In the original Greek, it's the word gumnos, and it means exactly what you think it means, bare, unclad, exposed. That's how we appear before God. The Hebrew also states that we are laid bare or laid open before God. The Greek term employed here is very interesting. It's a long Greek word, tetrakalismana, which is derived from the word trokelizo, meaning to seize or twist the neck. The word refers to bending back the neck. It carries with it the connotation of a wrestler seizing his opponent by the neck or throat in such a way that renders him helpless. It can refer to bending back the neck of a victim to be slain, pulling back the neck with knife on the neck ready to slit a person's throat. The figure of the sword in verse 12 kind of lends to this imagery if you read one verse up. But the literal sense of the word seems to be with head thrown back and throat exposed. You think about that. That's how we appear before God. The vision of one's head thrown back, throat exposed, vividly depicts the posture of complete and total surrender, right? You are not in a position to do any compromising or negotiating at that point. We are in a non-negotiable position before God. And if that weren't scary enough, consider Acts 1, 24 and 25. The setting here is the choosing of the replacement for Judas. And you have a choice between Barsabbas or Justice and Matthias. And after casting lots, the lot falls to Matthias. And it says, and they prayed and said, you Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. I want you to notice that phrase, who knows the hearts. The Greek term employed there is cardionostes. Cardia, meaning heart, and nostes, or genosco here, to know. It means the heart knower. The knower of hearts. Not only are we laid bare before God, neck thrown back, totally exposed before Him, He also knows our hearts. He knows every single thing that resides in our hearts because He's the heart knower. And when you know someone's heart, you know every single thing about that person. No one knows you better than God. You may have a best friend that knows you very well. Your spouse may know a lot of things about you that other people don't know, but no one knows you better than God because God knows every single thing about you. God even knows better than you know yourself because a lot of times we don't want to come in contact with the deep, dark secrets that we have in our lives. We choose to remain shut off from those things as much as possible, out of sight, out of mind, but God even knows those things. Sometimes people will say, well, I'm just an open book. No, you're not. Nobody is. Nobody tells you every single thing about them. Nobody. Everybody keeps some things hidden because obviously if you poured out everything about yourself, you'd be scared that somebody wouldn't want to be your friend, right? We don't want somebody to know every single thing about us because we know the ramifications of that, but God does. God knows every single thing about you, every secret sin that resides in the nooks and crannies of your heart. God knows it. He sees it because you are laid completely bare before Him. And that may be scary. I've told you before, my utter disdain for the song, There's an All-Seeing Eye Watching You. I don't like that song. I don't think it depicts God in a scriptural manner. I don't think the the song book is like the Bible, that it's Holy Spirit inspired and that therefore we should accept every song in there. And that's one of them I don't accept. I don't like that song. You may, and I'm sorry if I offend you, I don't like that song. I don't think it depicts God in the right light. This big eyeball in the sky that's waiting to see you mess up so I can shoot lightning from the pupil to turn you into a french fry for all eternity. I don't think that's how God operates That's not the image I think we need to leave people with concerning God. But here's the deal. There is an all-seeing eye watching you. That is a fact. God is watching us. And that may scare you, but I want to tell you that as a Christian, it shouldn't. In fact, it should give you quite a bit of comfort. Because let's review what we just said. You are completely exposed before God. He is the heart knower. He knows every single thing about you. And yet, he wants you. He wants you in heaven. For reasons that I don't even understand myself, God wants Chris McCurley in heaven. And he wants you in heaven as well. Now, how many people could you say that about? Somebody that knew every single thing about you, every thought you've ever had, every misdeed you've ever ever done. They know every single skeleton in your closet you think they'd still want a relationship with you? God does. You were made in the very image of God. And I must see me the way that God sees me. I must see myself the way that God sees me. I was made in the very image of God. Now we know that God is not physical in nature, that he's spiritual. And so therefore we're not talking about physical characteristics. I don't have God's eyes or you know, his lips or whatever. But from a spiritual standpoint... Think about the ramifications of that. You were made in the image of God. You share these spiritual qualities of God. Think of what this means. We were made in the likeness of our creator. Adam was made different than any other creature that was created. He's sitting there, and as the animals are paraded by by him, he's naming them, but he didn't find one that was suitable for him because he was different. He reigned and ruled all over all of them, right? God set him in a special position. He was created in the image of God. We were stamped, framed with the image of the Almighty. And your worth started before you were ever even born. Before you were born, you had value. Before you were born, you were esteemed. Before you were born, you were priceless. You were created to bring God pleasure through faithful service. And I believe your life only finds meaning through a relationship with God. Think about this. The fact that someone died for you, even though you didn't deserve it, even though you were repugnant and repulsive, shows you just how desirable you are to God. The fact that God would give his son as a sacrifice for our sins proves beyond a shadow of a doubt just how much we mean to him. I mean, after all, you don't die for someone unless you love them immeasurably. And all of this Despite the fact that he is the heart-knower, despite the fact that you are laid bare, completely exposed, unclad before God, he knows everything about us, and yet his response is, come to me, right? How incredible is that? Think about the entire meaning of John 3.16 there. And think about what that means for us. That rather than God turning away in disgust, he wants us to draw near this is the master that we all need to come to know. Instead of hunkering down, waiting for God to strike us dead because we didn't, uh, you know, cross every T and dot every I, we need to be drawing near. I, I love what David says in Psalm 139, 23 and 24. He says, "'Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts.'" and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. David embraces the fact that there's an all-seeing eye watching him. David embraces the fact that God is the heart knower. And you know what he says? Audit me. Search me. Imagine doing that. Imagine calling up the IRS and saying, yeah, uh, do you guys have time to audit me? I mean, I just want to make sure I'm giving you all, all the money that I need to be giving you. You would never do that. Mainly because you'd be afraid that they'd find some money that you hadn't given them, right? But David says that. David says, audit me. Look me up and down. Search me through and through and tell me where I am failing because I want to more than anything else please you. And therefore, search me, try me, make certain that I am clean. Because I want to be as close to you as possible. Look with me at John chapter 19. Verse 30, it reads like this. You may not even have to turn there. You probably know these words. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What is it? What was finished? What is the it there? Well, if I'm not mistaken, the it is the complete and adequate sacrifice. A sacrifice that would satisfy the justice of a holy God. A sacrifice that was perfect and once for all time. It was done, which is why Jesus could say in his dying breath, it is finished. But, you know, we don't always act like it's finished, do we? We don't always act like it's finished. We, we act and think like there's more to do. And I'm guilty of this. We feel like that, that we've got to help out Jesus' efforts. You know, that you know, you've done a good job. Let me just add a little bit here and there. Like there's still something left to pay off. Like there's still some debt that we owe. Like we still need to do something to help it out. Like our feeble efforts are going to do that anyway. And maybe you need to read your Bible more. Maybe you need to pray more. Maybe you need to attend church more. I, I don't know. But at the end of the day, this is not about performance. It is finished. If you could save yourself, then why did Jesus need to come anyway? If there's something more that you could do here to just kind of put the finishing touches on it or maybe put a bow around, you know, the cross and what Jesus did, if there's anything else that you need to do, then, I mean, why do you need a Savior? This isn't about your efforts. This isn't about a merit or in earning, you know, I was in Cub Scouts. And in Cub Scouts, you had this sash and you got all these badges. You know, I think that's sometimes how we think about, you know, salvation. You know, I earned my salvation badge and then I earned, you know. It's not about earning any. You don't have any earning power. This is about what Jesus has already done. My friends, you are a child of God. God's not mad at you. And it frustrates me because I've... I, I have to remind myself this, and I have to remind Christians of this all the time. If you're a child of God, God's not mad at you. He's not sitting up in heaven waiting to say, okay, I know you're a Christian, but you just wait. I'm going to find something on you. It's not God. Don't live your life like God is constantly mad at you, like He's teetering on you know, the edge of, you know, don't set me off. It's not the God that is presented in Scripture. There is a distinct difference, as you've heard me say over and over again, between a condemned sinner and a cleansed sinner. But so often, cleansed sinners are acting like condemned sinners. That standard is not sinless perfection. If that were the standard, none of us would meet it. Consider the lengths that God has gone to in order to bring you closer to Him. He knows everything about you. You are completely exposed and laid bare before Him. Quit living your life like a cowering puppy waiting for God to abuse you because you didn't act right and start living in the full joy and the blessing of knowing that you're a child of God, that you serve a master who loves you and wants to be close to you. When you look at the cross, notice that it goes up and notice that that represents the relationship with God and Jesus, but also notice that there's a beam that goes across and that rep- represents our, our relationship with those around us, right? So it goes up and it, and it goes far and wide. So we love God and we reciprocate that love by, by showing it to others. I mean, Jesus even said, you, uh, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But he also talked about in John chapter 15, how The love that he has for us is the love that we should show to other people. We said it this morning, Mark 12, 30 and 31, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Notice the order. What comes first? An all-consuming love for God, which trickles down to a love for our fellow man. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself until you first love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want you to imagine that you had a book that contained how to deal with any and every conflict that may ever come up with someone else. There is not a single issue that you would have to deal with that this book didn't address. And so let's say that you're having a conflict with someone And in the moment, you get out this book and you start leafing through it trying to figure out how you should deal with the conflict. And after about an hour, you find that particular issue and you, ah, okay, here's how I deal with it. And you turn around, the guy's gone. You know, he's been gone for an hour. You think about how thick of a volume that would be. But you don't need that. What you need is to see people differently. What you need is to see people the way God sees them. I mean, it's very simple. Jesus said, Treat others the way you want to be treated, right? The golden rule. So you put yourself in that position and you say, how would I want to be treated in this particular situation? And you act on it. You don't need large a large volume, a big book. We just need to see people differently. We need to see them as God sees them from a spiritual perspective, the way that God sees us. Remember the movie Karate Kid, the original one, not the remake? the original Karate Kid. Great movie. But in that movie, Daniel, the main character, decides that he wants to get back at some bullies, and so he wants to take up karate and uh, enter an upcoming karate tournament, and he's going to get his vengeance. And so he talks to Mr. Miyagi, because he knows he knows karate, and he wants him to teach him. And his, his teaching method was very unorthodox. You remember that? Wax on, wax off, paint the fence, sand the floor. Mr. Miyagi gives Daniel all these menial tasks like washing and waxing all of his cars, and there were lots of them, painting this long fence that seemed like 10 miles long, um, you know, sanding all of his floors, and finally one day Daniel gets fed up and he says, this is ridiculous, I'm just your hired help and you're not even paying me, right? And Mr. Miyagi, in the midst of Daniel's frustration, starts doing all these karate moves, show me sand the floor, you know, and he does all that, and it was all a means to an end. All these menial tasks that he was doing were helping him with the repetition of the basic moves of karate, right? I think there are some folks that look at God and think, he's having me do all these menial tasks and it doesn't make any sense. And he just wants me as his hireling and that's it. But you understand that God is training you for something bigger. That this is preparation for eternity. That what God is doing is all motivated by love. And that whatever we may have to do or deal with in this life is all preparation for something bigger and better. He's priming us for victory, right? Thank you for being here today. I'm so encouraged by you, and I thank you so much for your, your encouragement this morning. You're all so sweet to me. You know, I was talking to a preacher friend of mine when I was home uh, for the holidays, and you know, it seems like every preacher friend I have talks about some of the frustrations with ministry and some of the struggles. And I just sit there and I go, man, I don't have that. I got the perfect place. You guys are so good to me. Thank you so much for, for being patient this morning with the two services and just the encouragement that you you constantly give. If we can encourage you tonight, if you need the prayers of this church family. We say it every week. If you want to study the Bible with someone, I mean, we can baptize you. That's not a a problem, but I think too often what we do is we get somebody wet. We don't really talk about what it means to be a disciple. We'd love to talk about that with you. If you've been discussing that, if you've been studying that, and you're ready to get baptized, fantastic. Let's do that. Let's begin a daily walk with God. But don't leave here tonight without being right with God. And our challenge for the week, go out and live like you're loved, because you are, and show others the love of God. Come as we stand and as we sing.